So our sermon series that we're starting this week for the fall is called Delivered to Dwell. And this is going to be a kind of nine to 11 week journey uh, through the life of Moses. And uh, we're going to be starting in the book of Exodus, continuing through the book of Deuteronomy, kind of look at how God is moving and interacting in this story um, through the life of Moses. And if you hear that and you're looking kind of at all there is in the world, you're looking at your life and your relationships or your school, and you're like, why in the world are we studying Moses? Like, could we not do a series on like conquering my anxiety or like relationships or finances? Like that would be way more helpful. Um, I want to uh, answer that question before we ever jump into the series. So I want to just briefly tell you why we're doing this, and then we'll get into some of the the text today. So I want to give it to you like this. Uh, Who in here likes to wait? Like not lifting weights, but like W-A-I-T. Like who likes to wait for things? Anybody? Like top three, wait in line at Baja Burrito. That's just like, I love the waiting part. The the burrito's like, okay, but like the line is just my favorite thing. Um, No one says that, right? Um, I was talking to Dave, one of our other pastors here at Ethos this week. He's got three kids, uh, age one, three, and five. And uh, he made the mistake of telling them that they would be able to go to Disney World at some point. And in his mind, he was like, that's probably like two or three years. And uh, it resulted in this incessant, every single day, every hour of the day. So uh, dad, about the Disney World thing. Um, so when is that, what's that happening? Like tomorrow, tonight? Like when are we going? Is that gonna be soon? Or like, they have no concept of waiting. And it kind of, uh, it showed me that waiting is hard, but waiting on something that's been promised is really hard, right? If you know it's coming, uh, it's really difficult to wait on a promise. This is why the season of engagement to someone is, is kind of difficult because you make this promise, like I'm gonna spend the rest of my life with you. I'm gonna love you with my heart. Like I'm gonna go after your heart. And, and it's like, all right, let's like nine months, we'll, we'll start that, you know? It, it, it's hard to wait for things that have been promised. So what do we do when we encounter the promises of God? Sometimes I think it's difficult to wait on something that's been promised, right? What do we do with the fact that God has promised some things, has said some things, has given us some things to cling to in our lives, yet there's often this huge gap between what we're experiencing and what God has promised. You ever felt that way? The Exodus story The story of Moses is a story uh, about people who are in the midst of waiting. Uh, It's a people who are suffering, who are in pain, and they don't know where God is. And God has promised some things and they don't really understand how it's working out. But more than anything, the story of Exodus is a story about God. And and my uh, point, the thing I want to ask you to consider is that uh, a right understanding of who God is Uh, gets down underneath all of the needs that we have, all of the wants and the desires that we have in our lives and and gives us intimacy with who God is in a way that changes how we then live on mission and and with relationship with God, okay? So um, a right understanding of who God is helps us deal with our anxiety. A right understanding of who God is and God's activity in our world begins to help us conquer the fears that we have in life. Um, And if we deal with that root understanding, it begins to shape then how we go out into the world. So uh, my hope is that um, as a result of this study, we'll begin to see God for who he is, for how he interacts with us in our world and with his people. And we'll begin to walk with God more faithfully through the seasons of waiting. So that's why we're jumping into it. Okay. Uh, So let's, uh, let's get in. We're going to be in page on page 26. uh, If you're using one of our blue Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to stand up at any point. They're on the community tables. You can grab one. 
page 26. We'll get there in, in just a moment. But before we jump in, uh, two notes as we start the series. The first one is we're going to be just kind of flying through the story of Moses at times. And you're going to be like, whoa, pump the brakes. You just like summarized 15 chapters, you know. And uh, so along the way throughout this series, we're going to try and give you some supplemental resources, some things throughout the week that can fill in some of the gaps that we're not uh, touching on on Sunday mornings. And uh, we'll like tweet those out on our uh, Ethos Twitter uh, for the Hillsborough Village, ethos underscore HV, if you wanna follow us there. We'll tweet some of those things out uh, so you can follow along with us. Uh, That'll help fill in the gaps. The second thing, and this is more for today, um, this teaching um, is pulled from a lot of places. Um, I, I have really studied a lot of different people and communities that have gleaned from the Exodus story. Um, so I, I would never want to uh, make it seem like I came up all of this on my own. Like I'm, I am standing on the shoulders of many men and women who have really spent some time in this text this week. And as I go, if there are people that I have tried to take specific and unique ideas from, I'll try and reference that along the way. So um, Book of Exodus, here we go, let's jump in. Uh, let, let's start out about uh, a little bit about the book of Exodus. It's the second book in a five book series called the Pentateuch. So who said that word this week, Pentateuch? Anyone say that word out loud? Okay, one person, he's in grad school for, for uh, theology probably, but everyone say Pentateuch. Here we go, one, two, three, Pentateuch. Great job, you're all uh, scholars now, good job. So uh, the Pentateuch literally means book of five. And what that's going to tell us is that Exodus is the second book in this five book series that was meant to be taken as a singular narrative, right? Uh, So let me put it to you this way. On December 18th, 2015, just momentous moment in the history of uh, our culture, really, of of tons of things. Star Wars The Force Awakens hits the theaters uh, after many, many months of anticipation, right? Who went and saw it? Raise your hands. A lot of people saw it probably. So, um... This was film seven in the Star Wars series, right? So the confusing thing about that is that film one came out in 1999 and film four came out in 1977, right? So it's it's like, okay, what am I looking at here? And if you're just a huge geek nerd, like geek nerd, like both of them, um, and just totally geeked out about it like I was and just like into all of it, every trailer, you're just like losing your mind. And um, if 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 that was you, and you tried to explain the story to someone who is a non-nerd, that was pretty tough, right? So it's like, okay, so what, what's happened? So there's this guy named Darth Vader. His, his first name's not Darth. That's like, no, his first name's Anakin. You have to go back to the first movie, which came out later than the fourth movie. Now, and don't worry about Jar Jar. That was a mistake. Like someone's filled with regret over that decision. Like it's just hard to explain the whole saga. And it's like really difficult. And if you went to see the film, uh, and, and you had all this background, this, this knowledge of the whole series. There were some moments in that movie that were unbelievably significant to you, uh, where everyone lost their minds that had no weight for someone who had not seen the previous movies, right? So there's this moment, Han Solo and Chewie come on the Millennium Falcon, right? Everyone goes nuts, like losing their mind. Chewie's like, and everyone's like, oh, it's Chewie. And someone who hasn't seen the movie is like, why is Bigfoot in this movie? You know? And it's, there's moments where there's this unbelievable significance for the movie and the story. And if you don't have any prior context, it didn't hold any weight for you. Oftentimes, what's going to happen to us in the story in the book of Exodus and following is there will be these moments that are unbelievably significant for us if we know the story, but if we don't know the story, we'll just kind of blow past it and it won't hold any weight for us in our lives. So 
This first text in the book of Exodus chapter one is kind of like Han Solo and Chewie boarding the, boarding the Millennium Falcon and us getting amped if we know the story. So um, here's what we're gonna do for the rest of our time. I'm gonna unpack some of the background, some of the context, and also look at about the first chapter of Exodus and kind of give us some big sweeping themes of what's going on here that we'll dive into more in coming weeks. And we're gonna see this in three big movements. So if you're taking notes, three big movements. The first one is a great promise. Second one is a mysterious presence. Third one is a sovereign purpose. So uh, we'll, we'll get to those as we go. Sound good? All right, Exodus chapter one, page 26. If you're using a blue Bible, I'm uh, gonna read just seven verses to start out. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, terrible name, and Asher. <laughs> All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, but then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So right here in these first seven verses is kind of like something that is uh, drop the mic, big moment if you know the story. So I wanna, I wanna go back and, and explain the significance of why just these names and these numbers are so important for us. I'll hold a lot of significance as we continue in this series. So I'm gonna go back to the previous book, the first book of this five book series and just kind of paraphrase and summarize for the sake of time uh, why this is so significant. It revolves around uh, a guy named Abram and this will be our first movement, the great promise. Um, this is, his name's Abram, later called Abraham. So um, if we go back in Genesis 12, there's this moment where God interacts with this man named Abram and makes this covenant promise with Abram. And he says, uh, I'm gonna make you and your descendants into a great nation. And I'm gonna bring you out of this land into a land you will call your own. It's flowing with milk and honey and you will be a blessing to all the people of the world. And God makes this covenant promise with Abram. We skip a couple chapters later in Genesis 15. Abram is a little confused and defensive with God. Uh, and he comes to God and he's like, okay, God, here's the deal. Um, I'm a hundred years old. My wife is 90. <laughs> She's been barren her whole life. We're not having kids. <laughs> this is not gonna happen. You've made this promise and there's this gap between what I'm experiencing. That's what Abram is feeling in this moment and God doubles down on the promise. He says, hey, go outside, look at the stars, try and count them. <laughs> Good, you can't, but that's how many your descendants will be. It'll be, it'll be like that. And, and God then brings that promise to fruition, gives Sarah uh, and Abram a child named Isaac. And this is how Abraham experiences this promise of God being fulfilled, one son. That's his experience of the fulfillment of the promise. So um, I wanna just stop briefly here and point out one thing. From Abraham's perspective, how do you think he experienced the promise of God being fulfilled? It's like, not super well, right? It's like, okay, I died and had one son and we were still here in our hometown. How's that really the fulfillment of your promise, God? I think this clues us into the fact that, uh, that we, that Abraham and us are not the center of our universe, right? This is not Abraham's narrative. This is not Moses's narrative. This is God's narrative that we are playing a part in. God is not a supporting actor in our story, right? And this is really tough in our culture that's like filled with celebrity. Like that's the kind of the epitome 
um, what everything's about you, your dreams, your wants, your desires, your life. And there's not really a scope of anything outside your birth and death. And God is inviting us into this narrative that's much bigger. And we have to open uh, our eyes a little bit more fully. We'll get to that more a little later. So the story continues. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has his son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons and they, their whole family finds themselves in Egypt because there's a famine. One of those sons was named Joseph and Joseph gets to power in Egypt. This is where we pick it up in verse one of Exodus. So I'm gonna read these first seven verses again. I want you to listen and follow along with the perspective of this great promise that's been made, okay? Let's read it again. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were how many? 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and his brothers in that generation. And then we get this awesome verse, verse seven. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And later on in Exodus, we're gonna see that by the time the people of Israel leave Egypt, there's like 3 million of them. It's like, this is the promise of God being worked out in the narrative. So here's what this means for us. Like we get this picture. God makes a promise to one man who experiences it on the very beginning. And then God works throughout many generations to bring about the fulfillment of that promise. Let's keep going in Exodus. And I want us to see how this begins to play out because as time moves on, we're gonna see that this promise doesn't really begin to play out like we think it should or would if we were approaching the story for the first time. This will be our second movement, a mysterious presence. I'm gonna read a bunch of, bunch of verses here, eight through the end of chapter one. So uh, just stick with me for a moment as we read. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built Pharaoh's store cities, uh, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was uh, named Shapira and the other was named Pua. But you, uh, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? I love this. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. <laughs> Straight up lied. So God dealt with the midwives and the people grew and grew very strong. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, every son that is born to the Hebrew, Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Here's what we just read. So from the outside, 
we get this picture of God fulfilling this big promise over the course of this narrative, right? But I don't think anyone would have thought it would have played out through slavery, persecution, and death. The new Pharaoh doesn't care about who Joseph is. Um, and he gets fearful of what the Israelites can mean if war breaks out, like they're gonna turn on us, we gotta put them under slavery. So um, gradually over time, it gets harder and harder and harder to the point where it's so much persecution that there's a literal genocide occurring for the Hebrews. I love the part of the story where <laughs> Pharaoh's like, hey, midwives, just kill, a, kill, kill a, the baby if it's a son, right? And, and these Hebrew women are just so hardcore. They're like modern or like ancient Martin Luther Kings, I guess. They're like, nope, like not gonna do it. And they just lie to Pharaoh. They're like, sorry, these Hebrew women are epic. Like they just have the child, we can't get there in time. And, and, and I, I love this, that We'll see this kind of as a theme in the first couple of chapters that um, in their culture, uh, men were the only people that could have power and influence and status, yet God uses uh, kind of a subversive means to use all these women to, to defeat Pharaoh and to bring about his purposes. It's a fantastic theme through these first uh, couple chapters. We'll see more of that later on. Pharaoh gets fed up with it and he orders every Hebrew son to be thrown into the Nile River. Can you imagine the pain of this? It's easy to read over this like it's a movie, Prince of Egypt, like, oh yeah, was, you know, through in the Nile. But it's like, this is, this is so much pain for these Hebrew people. Can you imagine the depth of hurt to have a child and to have someone come take it and kill it? Like, I don't, I don't want to say that like, I don't want to be too graphic there, but like that, that causes some pain. And all of a sudden the Nile River, which is known as the source of life for a desert, becomes this instrument of death for the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people begin to experience this gap between what God has promised and what they're experiencing. And there's this season of waiting for God to unveil his promises, to bring about his promises in their midst. They begin asking questions, where is God? Have the promises of God expired for us? Like, do they not mean anything for us? Was that just for Abraham? Why are we here? God, how long will you leave us abandoned uh, under genocide in a foreign country as slaves? Your promises are worthless. These are the feelings that the Hebrew people are working through. And here's what I just want to be uh, really honest about for a moment. Um, following Jesus is really tough sometimes, right? Like a lot of us have felt abandoned by God. A lot of us have experienced loss and sorrow and pain and difficult life circumstances. And it is so easy to get in this space where we just feel abandoned. Like ha, have any, I have been there before. I said, God, like, I believe you're good, but it's really hard to reconcile the fact that you're good and like working for my joy with what I'm currently experiencing. There's a gap there. God, where are you? Have you ever experienced this? Let me encourage your heart for just a moment. Have you ever felt that way? I want you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand if you've ever been in a space similar to that. All right, look around the room while your hands are raised. All right, this is pretty much all of us, right? We've all been there, okay? So have, take heart that you're not alone, okay? Like, please, just like, you're not alone in this. There have been faithful men and women throughout thousands of years who have loved God so deeply and asked these questions. Think about Jeremiah, I think about Jeremiah. If you ever study the story of Jeremiah, it's, it's ironically funny. It's like satire almost because Jeremiah does everything God says and always ends up getting beat up and left for dead. Like that's, that's the result of him saying what God tells him to say. 
There's a point in Jeremiah where he's like, God, you seduced me. You tricked me. Like you told me to follow you. And now like you've left me out for dead. There, there are people who have been prophets and teachers all throughout history who have experienced this. You're not alone. I know that truth alone, uh, the fact that like God is uh, with us doesn't like always help, right? If we were to jump down into chapter two of Exodus, let me read this really briefly. Uh, this is kind of in retrospect, the writer of, of Exodus talking about where God was in that chapter one. It says, during those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Listen to this, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and he knew. Listen to the actions of God right there. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. Friend, brother, sister, in the middle of your pain, God hears he knows, he sees, he's with you. He has not abandoned you. Psalm 145 would say, the Lord is near to all who call on him. He hears their cry and saves them. Now, I know when I say that, all of you didn't suddenly figure it out. You know, it's like, oh, thanks pastor. Like, let me write that down so I can get rid of my anxiety. You know, it's like, that's not how it works. I know that truth alone, like doesn't just fix how we feel. I'm not trying to invalidate any of your pain, any of the circumstances that you've been through. It takes time to cultivate in our hearts this response to God in the middle of our circumstances that trusts in him and believes that he's good. So we see in this, uh, in this second part of chapter one that although it seems that God is absent and distant, uh, he is very much active, he's very much present in the middle of their circumstances. If you notice, commentators always point out that God's name is only mentioned in a passive way throughout all of chapter one. It's like Hebrews, the Hebrew women feared God. It's kind of the only way that God is mentioned. So it's kind of this overarching theme. Where's God in the midst of my trouble? And yet we're about to get into this third movement where it's gonna show that God has a sovereign purpose even in the midst of our pain. So let's keep going. We're gonna read the first 10 verses of, of Exodus chapter two. This, is kind of be, this will be uh, the last part that we'll jump into. It says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. A woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister, talking about Moses, his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women uh, to nurse the child for you? This is, uh, sorry, Moses' sister talking, verse seven. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call uh, you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away, nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. 
and he became her son, and she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So we're going to see, we've seen God's promise. I'm going to make you into a great nation. It's not really working out how we thought it would. There's this mysterious, is God present or is he not? Like, it doesn't seem like he's here in the middle of our pain. Yet we're going to see that in the midst of all that, God is moving and orchestrating the deliverance of his people all the while. God's sovereign purpose. So again, we see here, although Pharaoh was so afraid of the men of the Hebrews, the Hebrew men, it's again, the Hebrew women and the women of Egypt as well that are gonna be the people that play the most influential parts of the story. Moses is born, his mom hides him in the bushes. Don't think about Prince of Egypt, like Moses like flying down the Colorado Rapids. Like that's not really what's happening here. It's like she placed him in the reeds on purpose and Moses' sister's watching from across the bank, right? The daughter of Pharaoh, one of his many daughters comes over, finds it, has compassion on this child. She's like, I can't let this child die. Uh, Moses' sister comes over all unknowingly. She's like, oh, look, a child. Like, wow, that's crazy. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we should find like a Hebrew woman to nurse it. Like, that might be a good idea. And she's like, yeah, go do it. I'll pay you. And she gets his mom. And Moses' mother nurses Moses to health, to be a young, mo- young boy. And then Moses goes back into the house of Pharaoh to be raised, to be trained in speech and battle and all these other things. So it's this amazing moment that we see God's hand at work here, even though we can't really see it, right? God's sovereign purposes are being interwoven into this narrative, despite the fact that no one in the present moment knows that's what's happening. Moses' sister doesn't know what's going on here. Uh, The daughter of Pharaoh um, isn't aware of God's movement in this story. Yet all the while, God is at work. And it's only in hindsight that we can look back and see how God was unfolding his promise to deliver his people and bring them into a new land through Moses. Only in hindsight. So um, this is where a right understanding of God and God's activity will help shape our experience. So remember a few moments ago how we talked about this being God's narrative, not our narrative, right? I want to say this as lovingly and as gentle as I can. Um, If we are the center of our own universes, if everything is about our short time here on earth, pain and difficulty will always be really, really tough for us. I'm not not saying it's going to be easy regardless. Like, um, we, we've talked about like pain is a real thing that you should get to feel, feel the emotions, but it's going to shipwreck our lives a lot of the time if we are the center of our universe. I'm not invalidating the pain, but it will derail us over and over and over again. But if we recognize, man, we are in God's story here. There's something bigger going on. God is good. I don't understand it. I don't see it. It seems like nothing is actually God, but you know, things are happening. There's pain, there's difficulty, but there's also growth. Like we don't understand all of this, but we believe that in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the pain, in the waiting, in the gap between what we experience and what God has said, uh, we trust in him. And that is where the strength to endure difficulty begins to well up in our hearts. That is where we find with the Holy Spirit, this growth that begins to encounter suffering and just proclaim the goodness of God. So where do we go from here? How do we kind of wrap all this up? So um, the story of Exodus is not always gonna be one that uh, we're gonna end and go, all right, here's three points that you take with you to your week and your job. Like that's not how we really interpret the book of Exodus. Um, 
We interpret the book of like James that way, where it's like, take care of widows and orphans. And we're like, okay, (laughs) it's pretty clear there what we're supposed to do. The book of Exodus is a narrative that God is inviting us into. And rarely will we draw a straight line from that narrative to our lives. Rather, what we're gonna do is see this narrative inviting us into the story to see who God is, to see how God interacts with his people and his activity in the life of his people. And hopefully that will begin to shape and change how we then go out into the world, into our jobs and into our relationships. So here's the question that I want to use to frame our conversation as we end. Just kind of a question. What what do we do in the waiting? What do we do in the waiting? Because God has promised some things, right? God has said some things to us through Jesus in the scriptures. He says, I'll be with you always. I'm never, gonna, I'm never gonna leave you, never gonna forsake you. It's a promise. I will give you my power through the Holy Spirit to be like Jesus, to grow into the image of Jesus. I will be your comforter in times of need. I came to give you abundant life, life to the full. I'm working for your joy in the midst of difficulty. These are things that like God has said to us on a bigger scale. As the church, Jesus has said, I'm coming back. I'm going to come back one day and restore all of this, all the brokenness, all the pain, all the tears that you feel. I'm going to fix it. Yeah, right now it's like, what is going on? Everything in our lives sometimes seems to be going the other way. Our world seems to be going the other way. God, what are you doing? What are you up to? What do we do in the midst of this waiting? When we are experiencing a gap between what we are uh, going through and what God has promised. I wanna give you just a few things that, that might help. Uh, this is not really like a three-step plan. More, uh, it's, it's more of just a, hey, let's think about who God is. Let's think about who we are and how that can begin to shape how we go out of here. The first one is to acknowledge our limitations, just to acknowledge them. So often, Joshua talked about this a couple weeks ago, so often our expectations will uh, really define our experience. What we expect of life will define how we experience it. So if we expect that life in Jesus is just super easy, that it's filled with comfort and fun, that's gonna shape how we then experience difficulty in life. But if we have a different expectation that Jesus says in this life, there will be trouble, begins to change how we experience that trouble, right? So in Isaiah 55, it says that God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It's this picture where C.S. Lewis would uh, use an analogy to describe it as 2D figures trying to comprehend a 3D cube world. It's like, there's no way that these flat objects can can comprehend this third dimension. It's like, that's us trying to understand our circumstances and how God is at work. It's like, his ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. So accepting that, I think, is the first step to kind of helping our expectations be in the right place um, so that despite our inability to understand um, everything in our lives, we begin to trust God a little more deeply as we encounter these seasons of waiting. That's the first one, acknowledge our limitations. The second one, pursue intimacy with Jesus. Pursue intimacy with Jesus. We're gonna come back to this over and over through this series that all of this is culminating in uh, the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
Exodus is ultimately a, the, the beginning of the story that leads to Jesus. It's all connected here. And it's so easy when we go through these life circumstances of, of waiting and, and difficulty to um, abandon our pursuit of the intimacy of relationship with God. I've done this many times, but I think that an honest, authentic pursuit of God, not running from the questions or the pain, but coming to God with those feelings um, is so important as we walk through these seasons. Act like Jesus. He's in the garden of Gethsemane right before he's crucified. You remember the story maybe? He's experiencing this deep pain, this maybe abandonment by the father. And he says, God, I wish this cup could be somebody else's. Can we do this a different way? And it's not, not my will, your will be done. We look, we look to Jesus, we pursue intimacy with Jesus because there's no hurdle in our lives that Jesus through the cross and his resurrection cannot conquer. No matter what obstacle you're going through, no matter how, however misunderstood you feel, like if we want to talk about the promises of God not really working out, it's like Jesus lived a perfect life in uh, like relation to God and he was beaten and crucified. It's like that's how it worked out for him. So we looked at the cross as Jesus is our model. That's why we do communion every week. We do it every single week. Why? Because we're trying to like root us in the person of Jesus as we experience life. So like we are following Jesus here. How did he respond? How did he walk through life? Let's glorify him. And maybe today the, the struggle isn't like a life circumstance. Maybe it's your own sin and difficulty, like broken heart. Like I felt there, felt like I've been there many times. The cross is still the answer there. We go to the communion table and we take the bread and we take the juice and we remember that Jesus's sacrifice is what delivers us from our sin. And there's nothing, no matter how far off the, uh, off the deep end you've gone, the cross is still sufficient. Jesus is still good and he still loves you and accepts you because he has made it possible. So we look to Jesus and pursue intimacy with Jesus. And the last thing, this is kind of more for us as a community. Um, as we wait for the coming of Jesus, we don't talk about that a lot, but as we are in this season of waiting, what do we as the church, what's our responsibility? Um, Dave, one of our other pastors, I've talked about him. He says this a lot. When you don't know what to do, do what you know to do. When you don't know what to do, do what you know to do. So what, what do we as the church know to do? We keep living on mission. We keep uh, loving others. We keep serving others. We keep making disciples. We serve the city. We spread the gospel. These are the things as the church that we know that God has asked us to do. We keep doing those things. What might happen in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your family, in your work, in your school, in your life, in your finances? What might happen if this picture of who God is began to really take hold of your heart, if this was the, the picture of God that you saw as you go through life, what might happen as you encounter different circumstances in life? My, my hope is that as we get a clearer picture of who this God is, it will begin to infiltrate our hearts so deeply that as we experience whatever season of life that we're in, waiting, fulfillment, joy, pain, all of these things, we will begin to uh, experience to the full the life that God has for us as we live on mission, as we walk in relationship with him. Let me pray for us and we'll go to communion. Jesus, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, what you have revealed to us about your character, that you are good, um, that even when we don't see it, you are working. Even when we don't understand it, you are present. God, I pray for anyone in the room that has felt abandoned by you, 
that has felt hurt by you, that has felt like you're not there, that you're not speaking, that you're not near. God, I pray that this story, as we put ourselves into the story, God, that you would come down into our hearts and remind us that even though we don't see you, that you are there. Even that we don't feel you, uh, you are with us. And Holy Spirit, I ask today for a, just a special presence here in this room that anyone who has felt abandoned by you, that they would feel really tangibly in uh, their bodies that you are with them, that you are with them in the middle of their circumstances, in the middle of their joy. God, would you reveal your presence to us today? Show us how we can begin to worship you more fully because of this picture of who you are that we have seen from your word. God, we love you deeply. Jesus, would you be glorified in our midst today as we uh, reflect on you and your sacrifice and all that that means for us. Holy Spirit, would you fill this place with your presence as we worship, convict and challenge, encourage, comfort us, Holy Spirit. We ask this all for your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.